This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on today's episode. We're having an animal-loving special, Dr. Joanna from Dog Venture on hand. To offer up some advice on de-stressing your animals, are flat feet the norms in kids, knock knees and more? We were asking consultant orthopaedic surgeon Michael Uglow. I was meeting the winners of the recent James Dyson Award and asking the judge, what was he looking for? Finding out how to pick the best equestrian school in Dubai, the questions you should be asking and the benefits to all. And Moorfields was on hand about easing those dry eyes. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. Fantastic to be joined live in the studio by vet extraordinaire, Dr Joanna from Dog Venture. She is the expert of the hour. How are you, doctor? Hello, hello, hello. I'm very good. How are you, Helen? I'm good. I'm, not, I'm lying. I'm not good, to be honest. I'm mm. not good at all. And I'm going to try very hard not to cry. Um, yeah, we've just had a bit of a, a rough week with our doggy. Um, okay. He's well, 10 and a half and we found out, yes, that he's got a heart condition that's just not getting any better. So poor old Jarvis is going to be on meds and she, he's, we haven't told the kids this and I don't think they're listening. Um, but yeah, I'd be told he's got about six months. So we're just now on a bit of a mission to make sure he's as comfortable as possible and it's just horrible, isn't it? it we, You know, we always kind of enjoy the amazing moments of being a pet owner and a pet parent, but it's really tough. It is really tough and it's coming to the point where you need to accept that obviously they will age sooner than we do, which mm-hmm. I always tell my clients that that on one hand is good. They shouldn't be responsible for us. We, we're responsible for them. So fortunately, yes, we're going to go through the good times and then the less good times. Yeah. But it's all about trying to keep them comfortable. Now, what I would say is with the information you have, you will do everything at your reach to try and keep him comfortable, happy, wagging his tail, happy to be around you guys. And I think that's that's what matters. It's quality of life, right? Yeah, so exactly. Give him give him a couple of yeah, the last the last happy happy months of his life. But oh, yeah, it was, it's been really it's been horrible, to be honest. I've had upset husband, crying kids, and you know, I, I don't I think we often don't talk about how much these animals are part of our family you know he's 10 he's been my kids you know kids have grown up with him and it's a very real grief when you when you lose a member of the family so yeah i'm feeling yeah so i'm feeling i'm yeah i'm I'm feeling a bit a bit tender we're here to we're here to help you so well we're we're here to guide you all the way you deal with this every every day how do you manage it um it's not easy. No. I mean, even when you go to uni and you want to be a vet, in my case, it was a, a dream since I was a little girl. Obviously, you don't know. You're not prepared for this part, right? But mm-hmm. I, I just try and be the most empathic yeah. possible and just put myself in the other person's shoes and, and just do my best. Yeah. Do my best for all. Everybody. Make sure that the owners know what they can do, everything that's at reach for them. Make the animal comfortable. And and guide you all through the process of knowing, okay, now it's okay. This is where we're at. Yeah, this is where we're at. This yeah. is where we're going to be. So I and think, I, yeah. and I think honestly, having a good relationship with your vet is so so crucial. Fundamental, you know, to be able to. I mean, you know, we were sending our vet, Doctor Leanne, who is uh, our, our neighbour, and you know, comes on the show on a regular basis. You know, sending her videos of him, you know, breathing on the sofa, and you know, she's just yeah. to, to have someone that you trust. Oh, absolutely. And doesn't mind a message at 10 o'clock at night. (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes, yeah, whatever time it is. No, absolutely. It doesn't stop. It It, doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, Dr. John is with us today. What's been keeping you busy in clinic? What's what's coming in and uh, how are you how are you helping at the minute? Anything interesting? Um, it seems like lately I've been having some cases of poisoning. So dogs have been eating uh, unusual things or things that are not meant to be toxic but that the pet owners are not really aware of. Like what? So lilies or even like oleander which is a very common plant that in this case a client of man had it in the neighbor's back garden but was falling on their garden. Um, corn cob. <laughs> corn on the cob? Corn on the cob. Is that toxic? Uh, well, it it's not toxic, but the animal ended up in surgery with uh, an obstruction, oh, so a foreign la. body. So it shouldn't be eating that. 
Um, okay. Yeah. So ant bait. I had a dog yesterday that uh, accidentally ate a bit of ant bait, but luckily it was not at a toxic level. But yeah, the golden retriever was very curious and thought it was a yummy snack. Oh my! And the owner was a bit worried, obviously. Oh, and, and I think that's it, exactly it. If there's any cause for concern, get into the vet, especially something like a poisoning. Yeah. Um, something that I wanted to ask you was is actually. A, question we get an awful lot on the show so hoping we can help out as many people as possible which is about stress around a vet visit now my dogs love going to the vet they leap in the car they drag us you know through the door but judging by the number of messages we get on this topic i don't think that's that normal you know we get an awful lot of listeners whose animals you know will shake in the car will get distressed you know shy away from getting into any kind of cat carrier absolutely i cannot stress this enough um I know nowadays we're all very much focused on our mental health, but their mental health is also important. Mm -hmm. And so knowing how to detect fear, anxiety and stress in them is uh, crucial. Okay, in all in all aspects, because you want the animal to have a good experience. And sometimes while they can't talk, they talk in their own way. They've been through things, they're traumatized and you need to understand how to deal with them better. Because me as a vet, uh, I want to give the best quality of care for your dog. If you come with your dog and he's showing signs of anxiety, even potentially leading to some aggression, you're also going to understand that the the full physical exam that I would perform on a happy, super relaxed, excited dog is not the same that I would. So he is not going to benefit from that because he's not going to allow to do certain things that other dogs that are more relaxed and, and, and so what's in your toolkit what do you advise pet parents who do have an anxious beastie so number one very important to know how to detect the the symptoms first and and know uh, that your dog is suffering from those symptoms and not just the dog the cat as well so we're talking about FAS which is the the shortening for fear anxiety and stress and when you want to take a pet to the vet, it starts from home, okay? So the, the the stress starts from there. So whether you have like a carrier for your small dog or for your cat, get them used to it. Don't leave it inside the the cupboard or the, the shelf and then just take it out the day that you come for the consult. I get a lot of phone calls from clients saying, Sorry, I'm going to have to reschedule. I couldn't catch my cat. (laughs) (laughs) So they need to be familiarized with it. And actually, either a few days, like two or three days before the the consult, leave it out. Or actually, let it be a part of the decoration. Let the cat and the small dog throw some treats in there. Put some pheromone sprays. Uh, let him sleep inside so then when the dreaded day comes that he needs to come to the vet first it's not going to be that shock and he's not going to run away or be super stressed Um, and and then also uh, on your ride to to the vet in the car you have to keep them well accommodated so it needs to be in the back uh, seat on the floor uh, non-slip surface uh, obviously big dogs with a harness or a seat belt in the back also lots of pheromones um, music I was going to say music and talking music <laughs> music and talking don't be stressed don't <laughs> shout don't be too anxious music it has been uh, studied that music has a, a good impact right so there are uh, I've heard that there are some um, I'm playlists. Sure. Spotify for sure. Spotify does have one uh, for dogs is through the ear of a dog and it's quite good. And for cats, you also have some playlists. Uh, dogs have been proven that they enjoy either uh, if you don't find those kind of playlists, you can play classical music or uh, reggae. Hey, that's right. Break well, out the bomb, a bit of reggae, exactly. Right. Who won't calm down Do you know listening what? to that? I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if we can get some Bob Marley on the show before five o'clock today. Doctor Joanna is within <laughs> the studio with us. We are going to go to text line next. Lots of you getting in touch with questions, everything from food to kennel cough, kidney disease, um, and an aggressive cat as well. All of this and more coming up on Pets and Vets. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer with ProPlan. Groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Joining us to answer all of your animal questions is Dr. Joanna. And I have to say, 
I hope you've had a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I always do. Good woman, good woman. And Dr. Joanna from Dog Venture with us during until five o'clock. Right, let's kick off with Wesley. Wesley's got a Pomeranian, had a first kennel cough vaccine two months back and has been struggling with reverse sneezing ever since. Initially finished a course of antibiotics, however, still reverse sneezes each day once or twice. What can we do? She's one. Okay, so reverse sneezing uh, is a separate condition. It has not got anything to do with kennel cough. Obviously, the fact that he did get kennel cough probably caused a bit of sensitivity to the area. But basically, reverse sneezing happens whenever there's a reaction to uh, an allergen, usually environmental, or a foreign body goes up the airways, and obviously the dog won't sneeze the normal way, and will end up uh, having reverse sneezing. What does it sound like, Dr. Joanna? Uh, I cannot imitate it. I wish I try in the consults, and I end up uh, using a YouTube video because I will just cough and get all like worked up like I cannot because it's... (laughs) So so what would you advise to Wesley and the Pomeranian? So if it is uh, happening very, very often to a point where it's actually compromising his quality of life. You can try an anti-inflammatory, an antihistamine, try and really see the the cause of it because if it is happening, one thing is if it's happening once a day or once a week, then obviously you can just keep an eye on it. Uh, there are ways for you to stop it. You can always massage the throat, tap on the nostrils at the same time, and that usually stops the, the episode. It helps manage it. But if it's happening so, so, so often, then get medication or consider like a blood allergy test to check for environmental allergens. There you go. All the very best. Send me a picture of your palm. Um, we've had two questions about kidneys, one from Gino, one from Alyssa, saying what are the signs of kidney disease or kidney issues or even failure in cats? And Gino saying, how do you prevent a cat from getting kidney stones? Can we talk kidneys and cats? Okay, let's talk kidneys and cats. So kidney disease um, has four different stages. Uh, two of them are subclinical, which means that you will not really see obvious symptoms. The most common symptoms that uh, lead pet owners to to take their pet to the vet is usually increased uh, drinking water, increased urination. Uh, They will have gastrointestinal signs. Um, They will lose weight. They will become very lethargic and their breath will is known as a uremic breath is a very characteristic because they will have a lot of uremia in the blood. So uh, they, they will have a very foul breath that is not really the the foul breath you get with dental disease. Okay. Um, So obviously that only appears in later stages. So what you can do is all about prevention. So when your cat or your dog, they become senior, so from the age of seven, it's always good to do a blood test. Prevention is key. So by even knowing if it's on a very early stage or by performing a blood test called SDMA, which is an early indicator for kidneys, then you'll be able to prevent it. So you can change the diet. Uh, so you, you'll be able to halt it, stop it, or really slow slow it down. What about other lifestyle factors in terms of prevention of kidney stones, Gina's asking here? So kidney stones, uh, in terms of prevention, uh, my best recommendation would be uh, bottled water, um, because that reduces the saline. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. Hope that, that helps. That helps. And obviously doing a, a urine test every now and then if you suspect symptoms like um, difficulty urinating or spends too much time in the litter box, um, crying whilst urinating, then Aww. it is time to do a urine test, maybe an x-ray, an ultrasound to the bladder and just check. Okay, really hope that helps to both Gino and Lisa being in touch there. Salvador saying, hi, our cat Boo Boo. (laughs) Good name. Extra points for sending the name of your animal, Salvador. Our cat Boo Boo only likes dry food, doesn't take wet food. How can we make her eat wet food, although she is healthy? Is it a problem if an animal... It's not a problem whatsoever. Uh, We need to understand that... um, Wet food, although it has more palatability and it can satisfy them with less volume of food, it it can affect the teeth. So it will probably cause more dental disease because cats also don't like their teeth being brushed. So when a cat prefers uh, dry food, there's nothing wrong about that. And it's a matter of preference. So Okay. And what about the hydration factor? Because it seems like a lot of cats get a lot of water from wet food. 
you should always measure how much water your cat is drinking and then make sure that it is adequate. If it's adequate, then it's not that he needs wet food. You do need wet food for some uh, pathologies that you even want the cat to drink more water than usual. So you just need to observe and measure. Put out the, the, the volume of water, measure, measure it out, and then ask your vet, is it okay for my cat that weighs this amount of kilos? Is he drinking enough? And then you can... Be rest assured that he's hydrated. We've seen some great gadgets around encouraging cats to drink more water. Have you got any favourites? Um, well, I, I wouldn't say there. There nowadays, there's gadgets for everything, everything. right? So it's it's more. What does the cat prefer? You need to ask the cat. So <laughs> because you might order the fanciest one that actually goes with your home decor, <laughs> and then the cat will hate it and run away from it. So ask this to your cat. Do you like it? <laughs> you need to go and do some online shopping together. Yeah. Um, Dr. Joanna from Dog Rancher with us today. We've got a question about a dog licking its paws all the time, some cat aggression. Message from Isabel saying, what does it mean when a cat throws up water but also has asthma? We've got shaking dogs. We've got shedding dogs. And Liam wants to know about calming spray. Hear about it all the time. How best to use it before something stressful or on an ongoing basis? Great question. Curious to hear Dr. Joanna's take on that. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Dr. Joanna joining us from Dog Venture on the studio. It's hard to say, it's, it's a busy one. <laughs> we are going to help that. as men. Me, uh, me too. Keep me too. Going. Because, uh, now I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why. Because I think a lot of us, we were just talking there about stressing about going to the vets. And that can be because our animal might not feel comfortable going. It might be that it's a time thing. It's a finance thing. It's a case of, does this actually warrant a trip? So I, I feel like we're doing, we do good work here. You and me, yeah. and helping out as many people. I hope so, I hope so. We do. Yes. <laughs> um, so it is your last chance really to get messages in. We've got an awful lot to get through between, uh, between now and five o'clock. A message from Melissa saying, why is my dog licking its paws all the time? I've checked under a UV light. It's not fungal. I've been told it's either stress or allergies. Any insights there? So the potential causes, yes, it can be boredom slash stress, allergies, uh, mites, uh, it could be a foreign body, a cut on the paw. So usually the physical exam will go through checking if there's nothing there, no wound, no foreign body, no abrasion. And and obviously a comprehensive talk with your vet to, to potentially see what age, the breed, what is your pet eating, and then work your diagnostic. So just eliminating things. Eliminating. Okay. But it could, be one, it could be one for the vets just for that peace of mind. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Because they, they're not comfortable, especially if they're doing it all the time, then it, they can get an infection. It's a vicious cycle. They'll do it even more. So yes, absolutely. Okay. Hope that helps. Uh, Bella saying, how often should you get a cat groomed? Um, <laughs> uh, my answer is depends. Most cats, probably never. So I would say if you have a long-haired cat that does not let you um, groom him or brush him at home, he will bite you, scratch you, gets knots uh, under the, the groin, under the axilla, and can get secondarily skin infections due to that, then yes, absolutely. But normally, uh, no. I would say that they don't need to. It is stressful. So do it if you absolutely must. And a question here from Isabella saying, what does it mean when a cat throws up water and also has asthma? I didn't know that cats could get asthma. Cat and cats can get asthma. Oh, absolutely. There you go. Okay. It is an allergy response from the, the bronchi. So yes, the symptoms are similar to humans. So is that linked to throwing up the water and the asthma potentially? It could be. It could be. If it is while the cat is uh, suffering an episode or an asthmatic crisis, uh, then it is putting a lot of pressure trying to breathe uh, and it can get in the way of the cat vomiting. But you do need to go to the vet and have that checked because it will depend if there's other conditions. So if the cat has a sensitive stomach, um, because even having asthma, he should be throwing up water. So there's something else there. Is he drinking too much water? Um, so I would definitely get him checked. Okay. Liam, thank you for this, Liam, because we talk an awful lot about calming sprays on the show. And I've often thought, they sound great. Your question is, <laughs> How do we use them? Um, do you use them before something stressful or ongoing? We alluded to them earlier when we were talking about the stress of going to the vet. Yeah. So 
And I saw them in the vets the day and I bought some and I just kind of sprayed it a little bit randomly on the dog's beds and kind of left it at that. But <laughs> I have no idea if I did the right thing, Dr. Joanna. So, How should we use them to get the most out of them? So it depends. So you do have the spray, but you can also uh, apply it on a bandana and have the bandana on the dog's neck. You can buy the adaptil collar, which will always be releasing pheromones. So if you do decide to uh, go for the spray, it has to be ongoing. Obviously, you're going to do it before you go to the vets. Uh, but then you need to continue. And sometimes that might not be enough. Some dogs need a pre-visit uh, pharmaceutical to calm say, the anxiety. <laughs> so it will really depend on the on the case. Okay. Um, message here from Carolina saying, a year ago we got a new kitten, but we had another cat who is a bit aggressive. We thought he'd be accustomed by now. Uh-oh. Even though, they, even, I love this, even, <laughs> even though the, the kitten loves the adult, the adult, the adult does hates not. the kitten. Okay. <laughs> it's is not it, mutual. Is there anything we can do to stop the hate? Uh, how long has it been? About a year. A year. So a year is a long time. We're not talking about a recent encounter where you can try splitting them up and then gradually uh, getting them together and familiarized. Some cats, whether we like it or not, they like to be the only child. They like to have all the attention and the love and the food. They don't like competition. So if the level of aggression is really, really, really high up to a point where you're worried about the welfare of the of both of them, actually, not just the kitten, while the kitten now is, is much older, so it's not a kitten anymore, mm-hmm. um, then sometimes I see cases where they do have to rehome one of the cats because you might be causing health issues uh, alongside with the biting and the scratching. You might be causing urinary issues like cystitis, uh, immunosuppression and other things like diarrhea, stress, colitis. So you just have to really reevaluate. I'm going to send you the details for Dr. Katrin Yarn. She is a cat behaviorist and a vet, I should say, um, at the Joan Veterinary Clinic in Abu Dhabi. But she does do consultations in Dubai and on Zoom. So I'm going to send you that as a kind of stopgap as well, because I think it's really important to check out all those options. But yeah, as you say, it's a really stressful thing. It's tricky to yeah. know when to continue, when to give up. Because you want both to be happy, right? Of course, of the youngest course. is super happy, wanting to please the other one, and the other one's not like, having a good time. No. And um, we've run out of time. We, we haven't oh, run out. I really? Know, I know. I know. It's <laughs> really this afternoon has absolutely flown. So anyone whose message we didn't get to, I will put for next week. Um, and if anything is anything urgent, I'll speak to Dr. Joanna now, and I will message you privately. Thank you so absolutely. much for anyone that's to find you in real life and online. What's the best way of tracking? So you, down? you can find me in real life at uh, Dog Venture HQ. Or you can find me on Instagram at Joanna the Vet. Can't get any easier. If you want details, send me the word vet and I will send you those links. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Always an absolute pleasure. We love introducing you to the experts and we love saving you maybe a trip to the doctor or even just putting your mind at ease. And we're talking children today. We're having a special clinic with Dr. Michael Uglo, consultant orthopaedic surgeon. He's the medical director at Paley Middle East Clinic and joining us live in studio to answer my questions and most importantly those coming in on 4001. No such thing as a silly question. You can be anonymous if you like. How are you, doctor? I'm very well, Helen. It's great to see you. Thank you very much for the invite. You are very welcome. Now, I've already had lots of messages on my social media and I find it quite an interesting area of medicine because a lot of people worry about their child's development. They compare their kids to other children. They Google, <laughs> Dr. Google. Definitely. Um, so I'm kind of curious about some of the messages we're getting in and, as I said, putting some minds at ease. But before we get to the text line, what, what drew you to this area of medicine in particular? It's a good question. It's a very, very positive specialty and it's changing all the time because of growth. So what is happening at this particular moment in time for, for a child will be different in six and 12 months and years to come. So everything we do uh, is prefaced by the natural history and that's very different to uh, adults. It's much a slower change as they get older. And can you give us a flavour of some of the things we can help with between now and half past in terms of some of the issues that are coming into clinic and cases that you've been treating recently? Sure. Lots of people are worried about flat feet. They come in as if it's a diagnosis and actually it isn't. It's normal in many, many children and adults. Uh, Lots of uh, growing pains and deformities both in rotation and angulation that look 
perhaps abnormal or different from siblings and peer group. Uh, and often the grandmother says, you've got to get that checked. There's something wrong. And invariably, a lot of those cases, there isn't anything wrong, but it does need to be checked out properly. I was just about to say, sometimes it's just a case of saying, do you know what? Right now, nothing to worry about, but we'll keep an eye on it. You're in the system. Exactly. Fear not. Now, you're a father. Can I ask you, as an orthopaedic surgeon, are there any sports or activities that you would have discouraged your children from doing over the years? Well, that's, yeah, what a question. I, so I played rugby until I was 31. <laughs> so you haven't got a leg to stand on. So up. I really, really, I'm very guilty. Um, I, but when my son, my eldest son at the age of 11 said to me, Dad, I really just want to go in a rowing boat. I don't want to play rugby anymore. And he became a rower. And uh, he's absolutely, you know, loved that ever since. Mm-hmm. So we just uh, encouraged sport for, the, for, for our children. And it didn't really matter which one it was. What about injuries that you've seen coming in because of overzealous activities well, and contact? absolutely. And there, there's a, um, a plethora of knee ligament injuries now in young children um, with the increase in sports and ankle ligament. I have a lot of experience in foot and ankle disorders okay. uh, and so ankle sprains and damage to joint surface we see as a result um, alongside a lot of the common fractures that we see. It's a sporty part of the world, you know, especially in these kids and things. So I wanted to ask you, a, we'll come back to your point about flat feet because I worried yeah. about it when my daughters were just starting to walk. So can you give us a bit of a medical explanation of what flat feet are? And ultimately, when as parents, we need to be tuning into there perhaps being some red flags. It's a great question. It's very common, Helen. So all children have flat feet until the age of four or five. And a lot of people don't understand or recognise that. The arch of the foot, which is on the inside border, lifts up gradually between the ages of five and ten. If it's not present at 10, the foot will remain flat. And in fact, 25% of the entire adult population have got flat feet. So having them is not a problem. There are plenty of Olympic athletes, for example, and footballers who've got flat feet. The problem comes in a small subset who have stiffness and pain. So So, so inflexibility. Yes. And and often in the calf muscle, this drives the foot because of the mechanics of how it all works. Mm -hmm. So the things to be concerned about are if there's asymmetry, that means a difference between the two sides. So one foot is different to the other. And also if there is pain in the foot or in the lower leg, this is something that then uh, highlights that something isn't right. And there may be um, correction of some kind needed, some uh, treatment. What could correction look like? We've had incredible podiatrists on the show before who can talk about taping and inserts and things like that. Would you would you work with experts in, in a similar way? Absolutely. So inserts are we use them because for function to improve function and symptoms, not just for appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just an appearance problem, then they don't need treating if they function properly. So good insoles do a very good job, but they don't change the growth. They don't change the natural history. Mm-hmm. So those patients that do have pain that persists despite good um, podiatry, good insoles, good physiotherapy to stretch the calf muscle, then some of those will require surgery. And that's where I come in. But they are, overall, it's a small subset of the patients who have flat feet. We've got Dr. Michael Uglow in the studio, consultant orthopaedic surgeon, joining us from Paley Middle East Clinic. Joining us live in the studio, we have got Michael Uglow. He is consultant orthopaedic surgeon, uh, medical director at Paley Middle East and joining us from the nation's capital. Thank you for making the journey, sir. Um, We're going to go to the text line. Jamil's been in touch saying, our daughter, now three, was a very early walker at eight and a half months. That is young. Whoa, whoa. Um, She was very bow-legged at the time. It's corrected a little, but still noticeable and people point it out. Should it correct in time or is there anything we can be doing? Is there a link between early walking and being bow-legged? Yes, that's a great question. And so, and often we see that and vitamin D levels can be low um, and this does cause increased uh, bowing. Now, bowing, true bowing, is when you look at the patient from the front, as long as the kneecaps are pointing forwards, then you see the curvature where the knees are wide and the ankles narrow. Mm -hmm. There are cases that in fact are due to a rotational problem, which is a twist in the bone, that make it look as if it's bowed. So it does need to be assessed by somebody like myself, you know, pediatric orthopedic expert who can tell you the difference because the natural history um, is different for the two conditions. Okay. But straightforward bowing is what we call physiological. That means it, there's no bone disease. And with normal growth, that will recover without any treatment at all. But this is a situation where a bit of peace of mind, get it checked over, know exactly what we're dealing with. Yeah. And again, if it's asymmetric, 
then it's more likely to be problematic. And there are some conditions that can cause that. So it's worth being checked, having a simple x-ray, and then you'll, you'll know which group you're in. Let's talk growing pains. Caro's been in touch saying hi both. Our eight-year-old is complaining of what she calls growing pains in her legs, especially at night. She doesn't want to do PE because of it. Would welcome any ideas. Well, if you paid as much as I did for PE uniform, that kid, that's kids getting into class. Are growing pains real? Yes, they're a real thing. Um, medically, we call it idiopathic pains of childhood. So typical medical people just put long names on it. But it's a real thing. But it is a diagnosis of exclusion. So whilst they have characteristic themes, it occurs in, in uh, periods of days or weeks and then days or weeks without, and then they can recur. And the reason is due to growth. So muscles and ligaments respond to the growth of the bone. So when the bone gets longer, all the soft tissues have to respond and get uh, correspondingly longer. But if they're just naturally slightly tighter, this causes tension. And that is what, when all the uh, distractions of, of day and movement have gone away, this is what the children are feeling at night. So yeah, it's a very real thing. So what can parents do to relieve that? And anything you know, children should be avoiding if they're having this at that time? So there, there are two things. So pain at night is always a worry. So it is worth making sure that there isn't anything underlying it. Again, if it's both sides, it's likely to be innocent. One side, there may be something else. Um, with patients who have this condition, I recommend muscle stretching. And these are simple stretches that can be done at home, but they can be educated by a good pediatric physiotherapist and they can uh, take you through the program and then uh, if that's done little and often at home this is often a very good way to get on top of it Helen. Any supplementation magnesium oil massage all that all that stuff extra stuff? Uh, to my knowledge and as a surgeon I don't think there's any evidence that supports it I'm not saying that they they would be wrong or do any harm but I think the mechanics of it are more likely to benefit than the medical therapy. Dr. Michael Ugler with us in the studio. Follow-up message regarding growing pain saying, my son complains of pain in ankles and knees. He's 12. Could it be growing pains? What age group would we be talking about? And is there a difference between boys and girls? Yeah, well, that, that is a great question. And certainly as you get older, so what I call middle-aged kids, you know, 8 to 12, is beginning to get out of the age that you would suggest growing pains. Growing pains typically are toddlers and, and the young middle children. So at that age, then definitely I would recommend that they, they're checked. Okay. We were touching on um, flat feet earlier and no name on this message. And as I always say, you can be anonymous if you prefer. Our daughter is 13 and has flat feet. Extremely normal kid, really sporty, but we think it's impacting her posture. Is there a correlation or causation? Um, there is because particularly in, in walking, so if the feet, as the foot gets flatter it actually rotates outwards so as the patient is walking and running it's harder and harder to push forward um, during uh, the gait so the foot needs to be ideally pointing forward so that the foot can lock and give you that power to go forwards um, as they get more and more splayed to the side this is, becomes what we call a weak propulsive gait and that means you use more and more energy further up the leg mm -hmm. uh, and into the lower back and the core and that definitely can have knock-on problems. Hope that helps. If you need any more information, get in touch. You can have to be quick, though. Bryony's been in touch. This was actually on social media earlier today, saying, great timing. Our son is almost two. Probably about a year ago when he started walking, my husband brought up the fact that, and I'm going to say this wrong, so I apologise, Geno Valgum runs in his family and we should get him looked at. I said, let's wait and see if it becomes a problem. It doesn't appear to have any issues at all with his movements, but his legs do look a little bit knock-kneed. Does your doctor have any experience with a child this young? Absolutely. It's very common. So the maximum age for uh, knock knees is three. So genuvalgum or knock knees, same thing. Uh, at the age of three, they are at the maximum angle. And this improves gradually to the age of six or seven when they have the normal adult pattern. So it's a very, very normal thing. You mentioned there it runs in the family. Um, are there any particular, you know, orthopaedic um, issues in children that we do need to be particularly tuned into when we think about family history doctor uh, well there are lots and uh, hip dysplasia is one of the common uh, we see that in one in a thousand live births and a positive family history uh, is is very much part of that condition okay and for everyone listening today who are thinking i just want my kids to grow up as strong and healthy as possible um in terms of prevention in being proactive around bone health is there anything you'd like everyone listening today to do or try or indeed avoid good balanced diet more greens less sugar oh great lots That's of activity <laughs>
Um, and uh, yeah, strength and conditioning. There's not enough time spent on that for, for children, but strength and conditioning, uh, making sure that the muscle groups I mentioned that can be tight, they're predisposed to injury, getting those stretched out, um, a good warm-up and good cool down, but making sure vitamin D levels are high as well. Now, when when I was a child, um, I, I don't know, think I'm romanticising by thinking that we probably were a little bit more active than today's generation. I think that's right. Um, so in terms of movement, um, speed, agility, strength, is it just a case of being as active as possible without pushing it too far? All of the above. Okay. I, I have no differentiation, just it's far better to be active than not. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. For anyone that we couldn't get to, and I apologise, we will we'll have you back if you'd love to come for another chat. I would love to. Okay. Thank in you the very meantime, much. though, Dr. Michael Ugler, where can people find you in real life or online to have a consultation, have a chat, and get further peace of mind? Thank you. So at Paley UAE, um, we work at the Burjil Medical City in Abu Dhabi, and I partner with uh, Dr. Draw Paley, uh, leader in limb reconstruction. Uh, and my website is uh, Uglo Orthopedics. If you want those details, just send me the word doctor. I'd be very happy to connect you. Dr. Michael, thank you so, thank you so, so much. much Safe trip back to our nation's fair capital, and we'll see you back in the studio very soon indeed. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We are meeting some incredible young creators next. The James Dyson Award has been challenging engineering and design undergraduates and recent graduates here in the UAE to design something that solves a problem for the last six years. And today we have the exclusive. The winners have just been announced today and they are live in the studio. Two of that winning team, Noel and Ashwin, in the studio. They are graduates of Harriet University. And I guess I, we're going to be hearing from a judge as well to find out why they won. But first things first, congratulations. Noel, how are you? Good. Thank you so much, Helen. Uh, I feel so grateful for this opportunity. And uh, I would like to thank Harriet Ward and James Dyson uh, for giving us this opportunity. Uh, it's a great platform to showcase our talent. And yeah. Well, I want to hear about the winning design. So, Ashwin, can you tell us a little bit about your invention? What's it called? So, it's called SMEFER, and it's an acronym for Shopping Made Effortless for All. So, SMEFER, so it's an inclusive design? What, what problem, to kind of borrow James Dyson's words there, were you looking to solve with your invention? So, the shopping carts which we see in the market today is usually like, it cannot be used by wheelchair users. They find it difficult, like difficult to control, like they have to move the wheelchair and the trolley at the same time. Mm-hmm. And like placing products into the trolley is also difficult. So that was our idea to make that easier for them. And that's how we came up with SMEFA. You are a mechanical engineering graduate now, is that right? right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about the structure, what research you had to do and ultimately what this finished design looks like. Um, basically, when we started this project, uh, we had uh, research on how shopping carts are made and uh, what is the process in uh, developing that. And as, as Ashwin said that most of the shopping carts we see, it, it's made of plastic, more sustainable, etc. But then we wanted to uh, stand out our project with other, like comparing to other projects. So which is why we had to, we wanted to add an innovation, which is uh, which can be useful for uh, people for determination. That means like uh, it can be used for wheelchair users. So in this way, like it would help all the people regardless of their individual needs. So is it adjustable in that case? Because if we're talking about different heights or requirements and needs, how can it be adaptable? Uh, yeah. So basically, this is a it's an automated spring mechanism we are using in this. So as as we upload. Uh, as we place a product in this cart, it automatically goes down. And uh, um, when a product is taken back, it uh, shifts to its original state. So in this way, like the capacity, the storage is still the same as the current cart, uh, as the traditional cart. And uh, also the weight, the, it's much lighter weight than the the current cart also. So this is what... We have done. And Ashwin, tell us a little bit about the smart scanning. What's that all about? So smart scanning is like usually when people go for shopping, like if they have some allergen problems, they have to look at the product and be like, oh, there's an allergen. So what we did is we added a barcode scanner and a few other features like LCD screen, which will detect, like once you scan the product, it will detect if there's an allergen. And this works with an app, which we have made. 
and in the app we can add the allergens like which all allergens we have and if it like connects like if, if it if they find the allergen in the product uh, the shopping cart will like It'll have an indication like yeah yeah wow okay I need to know a little bit more about what winning this prize actually means. Tig Donovan with us today, James Dyson Award judge. Um, tell us a little First of all, I want to know, how on earth did you become a judge for the James Dyson Awards? What's that about? I think the James Dyson Awards does a great job, obviously, of identifying um, a range and mix of talents um, that can that are used to assess whether a new and innovative design has, has potential. Um, so... I guess I have an engineering background from Harry Watt University as well. Uh, but we bring in together, you know, people with a finance um, background and marketing, a, you know, um, a design background and really everything that goes into what we think would be a very successful product. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this was a very technically good product, but it also had to have a market and it also had to be sustainable and has all these things that go together, a very multidisciplinary way in which we were assessing how good this was as a solution directly addressing those challenges or problems. Tyke, how many entries did you get this year? It's grown every year since 2018. I think we're 30 or 40 um, that we got up to. So we have to go through a lot. And the standard is rising every year as well, which is, yeah, I think as it's growing in popularity and people are really seeing the profile that JDA gives to to a new and innovative, you know, entrepreneurs like yourselves. Did you notice any trends in terms of areas of interest um, or, you know, specialties What's, what's trending, I guess, when it comes to our young inventors? I guess it's not necessarily to, to call it a trend, but we're definitely seeing you know, more people addressing some of societal challenges like sustainability. And you've already mentioned how this contributes to that agenda. And that is, a, you know, the judges are certainly looking for things that are addressing you know, specific problems, but also looking at those larger societal challenges. And sustainability, we might say, is one of the larger societal challenges of the day. So it is... Certainly, it's nice to see young entrepreneurs rising to that challenge and also the JDA prioritizing that for the future. Now, apart from the glory, um, tell us a little bit about what this team have won and what this means ultimately, because this is really just a first stage in some ways to what, what could be possible. Two main benefits, I think, that this team, well, two or three, let's start with, uh, there's a little bit of a financial reward. I guess Woo-hoo. it's around 25,000 germs for the team, which is a bit of pump priming, right? And they'll lightly put that into successive development of their products and Mark II and Mark They're Mark nodding. Three. They're going to go and buy some trainers and have a few nights out. <laughs> I'm trying to read their, <laughs> read their here. Um, but that pump priming is important, though, for early stage uh, entrepreneurs, you know, who are uh, scrapping together and doing their best to really put their head above the parapet. The other thing is the profile. I think JDA is really good at getting out there and really shining a light on what you guys are doing. And uh, the third is that they're going forward now to a nat- uh, sorry, an international competition, right? So all over the world, you're the national winners, but you're now going to compete with the national winners across the world. And ultimately, it's Sir James Dyson himself who will choose the <gasps> ultimate winner. Ooh, all right. No, you are about to, you're, you're both interning in terms of continuing your studies and, and getting into the, the marketplace. Tell us a little bit about what winning this prize means to you. It's a great addition to the resume. Do you think you're hopefully going to be able to take this to to market? Oh, uh, we hope so. Yeah, we hope so. Hope so. Yeah. Actually, like uh, working as in a group develops many skills, uh, team management skills and communication skills, and also another soft skills. Maybe we'll be working on certain software which we had never known. Mm -hmm. So in this way, we are developing many other skills and that's one positive thing uh, from this group. And also I'm working with my friends and I know their flows and and also (laughs) what they're good at. I mean, you're here together still friends and and, um, and winners. So it feels like it's been a fruitful partnership. Ashwin's, yes? Yes, yes. Okay, good. He's agreeing. Message here from Isabella saying, cool, Harriet Watt, that's my university. Graduated from their 2016 School of Textiles and Design Architecture. Proud alumni. There you go. That's what we like to hear. That's what we like to hear. Um, guys, for anyone that wants to check out the design, um, is it a case of seeing it now on the James Dyson Awards website? How can we follow your progress? Tig, what would you suggest? Yeah, it's all over the website. There's a press release going out today as well. You've got some really cool graphics that really demonstrate what it is. I understand it's, you know, what attracted us to it immediately was the image. We could immediately see what it was doing and how, you know, virtuous it was in uh, helping people who aren't always the, you know, the immediate customer or the person that we think of. Mm-hmm. I think when people see this design, they'll be, they'll, they'll, they'll see what the judges saw and they will, they'll appreciate, um, you know, the value that you've added to it. One time again, it is called SMEFA. So would you mind just telling us again what that stands for, Ashwin? So SMEFA stands for Shopping Made Effortless for All. <laughs> 
as it should be guys huge congratulations again Thank enjoy you. your success but that hard work continues because you're representing the uae now mm. okay right. so come back when you're global winners yes. sure and don't forget us okay thank sure. you so so much no ashton and tiger donovan thank you so so much really really appreciate your time and congratulations again your eye health on eye with moorfields eye hospital dubai world leading experts in eye care moorfields driven by your vision we are talking eye health on the show this afternoon and talking about dry eye, a common condition that apparently 62% of us suffer from. Joining us from Moorfields Eye Hospital, we've got specialist general ophthalmologist, Dr. Alia Issa. How are you, Dr. Alia? Hello, I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. I've had a number of messages on 4001 and on social media looking for a bit of clarification, looking for a bit of advice. So the text lines are open. Um, Let's start by, I guess, getting a bit of a general understanding of what dry eye is and, you know, some of the symptoms. Can you can you break it down for us? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, I think we've all heard of dry eye, right? Um, But if I would put it into simple words, dry eye is basically um, the lack of sufficient moisture and lubrication on the surface of the eye, right? And this can occur for several reasons. Um, The main reasons is either we are not producing enough tears or the tears that we have are simply evaporating too fast. Mm. Um, So those are the main two things that we always think about when it comes to dry eye. But at the end of the day, the symptoms that the patients complain uh, about are are often pretty similar, right? So some patients might come and say, really, yes, my eyes feel dry, while others might say, oh, my eyes are red and I'm so sensitive to light, Mm. or even blurry vision can be a very common symptom of dry eye. Really? Um, Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so yeah, so very often, you know, patients come in and they say, oh, I can't see very well, right? And then you do the eye test and they blink a few times and then they see. So this is very often a very typical sign for, for actually a uh, lubrication issue rather than having, uh, rather than the need for glasses. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so when it comes to diagnosis then, what are some of the questions you'd be asking in clinic? And you mentioned eye tests there. In order to get, you know, to the root yeah. of the problem and ultimately treat it properly, tell us a little bit about yeah. the diagnostic side. Yeah, so when it comes to diagnosis, basically in medicine, it always works more or less the same, right? So the first thing that is very important in diagnosing the dry eye is actually the history. So if a patient comes in and says, well, my eyes feel so dry and teary in the morning, um, I might treat them completely different from a patient who has complaints in the evening after spending nine hours in front of the screen, Mm -hmm. right? So um, basically the history and when the symptoms are there are very important. Um, During the diagnostics, if you remember from before I said we differentiate mainly between uh, and a dry eye where not enough tears are produced or a dry eye where the tear film simply evaporates too fast. And then we do have certain diagnostic tools to basically um, quantify this. We can uh, say how much tears is this patient producing? How good is the quality of the tears? Um, is there a problem with the uh, production of the of the oil um, th- that we need for, for a healthy tear film? And uh, yeah, so this basically guides me then um, into finding the right treatment for, for every patient. I've never thought about the quality of my tears before, but now I feel like yeah. it's another thing to be judged on. Yeah. Hopefully mine are all right. Uh, Dr. Ali yeah, Issa. I will never judge you on, uh, on the quality of your tears, but, <laughs> but it's, it's a funny thing, right? Because, uh, I mean, you know, we always take care of our skin because the skin we can see. Mm-hmm. No? So if you have dry patches on your skin or you have some irritation or redness or pimples or whatever, you go to the dermatologist and you say there. Right. But with the eyes, it's a little bit different. So, um, yeah, so just like the, uh, <laughs> well, let, we look at all aspects. Well, let's talk treatment yeah. then. I mean, you mentioned mm-hmm. before about inadequate yeah. lubrication. So I'm guessing drops are going to yeah. factor in. But what other yeah. treatment options are available and how do you decide what might be suitable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when it comes to treatment, um, the first factor is, if you remember, we talked about uh, the history of the patient, right? So um, first things are basic lifestyle changes. So if you tell me, well, Dr. Alia, my eyes are so dry all the time. And then I ask you, well, what do you do all day? And you tell me, well, I'm sitting in front of the computer for eight hours. And then I spend three hours um, on my phone. Then, well, we probably got to work on that, right? Mm -hmm. Because I can give you the best drops. I can give you the best treatment. But certain things, if we... Um, stare on the screen all the time and we don't blink, well, eventually everything will dry out. No? 
So there are simple lifestyle changes that we can do by simply reminding ourselves to take a little break from the screen, from the phone, to blink, because we do blink much less when we are on the devices. We can see this in our children, for example, right? If my daughter watches a video or, or plays a game on, uh, on, her, on her device, uh, she stares on it like a little zombie. So mm-hmm. <laughs> this will definitely give her a dry eye. And it does, uh, so those things that we basically are conscious about blinking and taking a little rest is the first step. Then, of course, lubricating the eyes. No? So um, especially when we're spending a lot of time indoors and the AC is blowing into our faces and so on, we should um, remind ourselves to lubricate our eyes regularly. Um, so those are the basic things that we can do besides drinking enough water and all those uh, healthy lifestyle choices. Dr. Alia, we've got lots mm-hmm. of questions. We're going to come to other, some okay. other treatment options in yeah. just a couple of minutes. But on the text line, we've had sure. messages going, would excessive crying affect your vision? A message here saying, after successful PRK at Moorfield, eye drops every morning help and evening too. Um, a message here from Vince saying, strange question, but does wearing glasses with just clear lenses help with dry eyes by keeping the air and AC away from your eyes? I don't know. And no name on this one saying, can poor air quality permanently affect your vision. If you've got any questions, you have to be quick. It's going to be a busy one when we come back. Dr. Ali Isia joining us. She is their specialist general ophthalmologist at Moorfields Eye Hospital. Talking eye health, we're very much on hand to help this afternoon. Your eye health on eye. With Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai. Eye care for you and your children. Moorfields, driven by your vision. Joining us live on the line is specialist general ophthalmologist Dr. Alia Issa on hand from Moorfields. We're talking dry eyes, a surprisingly common condition and one that many people just live with and think there's nothing you can do about it. We've just been talking there, Dr. Alia, about putting drops in. Can dry eyes be a symptom of something more serious that might require a different treatment method? Um, yeah, that's a very good question, actually. So uh, dry eye can uh, be a factor also in uh, in certain autoimmune diseases, right? So there are certain um, issues or, or diseases where patients complain of severely dry eyes, where it can actually be a sign for 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 a more severe condition um, like Sjogren, for example. I don't know if uh, if you know about that, but there, there dry eye is a very common condition as well um, as well as in uh, you know patients with uh, thyroid issues mm-hmm. or um, other. Uh, autoimmune issues uh, can, can, can complain of dry eyes. Yeah. And in some situations, even uh, a very severe dry eye that you can't combat just with normal drops. Okay, we're going to go to the text line. We've had lots of messages on this, so mm-hmm. it's going to be a bit of a quick fire yeah. round, if you don't mind, Dr. Alia. Yeah. Um, Vince yeah. is saying, strange question, but does wearing mm-hmm. glasses with just clear mm-hmm. lenses help with dry eye because they keep out air and air conditioning? I'm 51, my normal glasses wouldn't work for this as they're just for short-sightedness, but maybe I should get mm-hmm. some blue light glasses. So mm-hmm. would wearing glasses as like a physical barrier help if it is mm-hmm. AC, for example, that's bothering you? Yeah, I mean, um, there there are two parts in this question. So one is this: um, glasses protect you from uh, from from drying out your eyes, and in, in a certain way, yes, it does. Um, especially when we are talking the UAE, right? We are having a lot of AC that is constantly blowing at us, and this can um, increase the evaporation of your tear film. So uh, there, it definitely helps to basically um, protect your eyes from wind and dust and sand and all those kind of things. Now, when it comes to blue <laughs> light. Um, um, glasses. Does this really protect you from dry eyes? Well, this is um, debatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, blue light filtering glasses are not bad, but um, I don't see them really playing a big role in, in, in uh, prevention from dry eyes. Okay. But normal glasses, yes, from the wind for sure. Good to know. Um, a message here from mm-hmm. Harsha saying, regarding dry eyes, I do a warm eye mask for 10 minutes before mm-hmm. I go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Apparently mm-hmm. it stimulates moisture glands. Is there any truth in this? There is 100% a lot of truth in this. Uh, so this is a very, very good uh, point. So if you remember when we talk about not having a good quality tear film, right? Mm-hmm. The most common reason for not having a good quality tear film is that you don't have enough oils. And what happens is that those oils, they kind of uh, dry or clog up in those oil glands. And when we use the heat and uh, the moist 
uh, it will help to dilute those oils and uh, they will come to the surface and help to, to get a better tear film. Additionally, what you could do or should do after the warm compress is to actually slightly massage the glands, meaning the upper eyelid down and the lower eyelid up so that those oils can come, come up and uh, the glands can be, can be cleared. There you go. Thank you, Harsha. Mm-hmm. Um, anonymous message here saying, can, mm-hmm. poor, can poor air quality permanently affect your vision? So uh, permanently, no. Like it has to be really, really bad to really permanently have an effect, right? Mm -hmm. But it can temporarily for sure affect your vision because if the air quality is very bad, it will irritate your eyes that uh, triggers inflammation inside the eye and that uh, can, of course, um, lead to to blurry vision. Okay. And again, Mm -hmm. last message saying, would would excessive crying affect your vision? (laughs) I hope Mm -hmm. not. I'm a crier. (laughs) No, please don't be. Um, look, so if it's occasional crying, um, no, it will not affect your vision. And uh, usually, yes, it can, uh, you know, when the, when there are too many tears, it can dilute the, the quality of the tear film and you will temporarily maybe have a, you know, not as good tear film, but it will not um, be something that will that will last forever. Hopefully, <laughs> once the crying stops, your, your tears should go back to normal. And lastly, Dr. Alia, is there anything that you feel like we haven't touched on in this conversation around dry eyes that you think is important for people to understand and ultimately get a bit of relief what have we missed yeah um well i think we have touched base on on a lot of things of the dry eye it's just you know one thing is just to be mindful about it right um to be mindful about how much um care we put into our eyes that we really moisturize lubricate our eyes like we do our skin and um if we can't manage it ourselves just see your healthcare provider at morpheus we do have quite an extended uh, range of of uh, treatments available for dry eyes that are um you know unique actually in the in the region and uh, hopefully we can help every dry eye patient Dr. Alia, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to let you get back to your busy clinic there at Moorfield Eye Hospital. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. And if you want Dr. Alia Issa's details, she's their specialist general ophthalmologist at Moorfield. Just send me the word I, 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 and I will send you the link. We are talking animals on the show this afternoon, not cats and dogs now, but horses. Joining us is Jen Ford, a member of the British Horse Society, an international accredited professional coach based here in the UAE. We're answering the questions that you might have about getting into riding, what you should be looking for, qualifications and more. So if there's anything is on your mind, maybe you're thinking about getting into riding or your child is, reach out now on 4001. Jen, where did your love of horses and riding start and and where were you? Well, crikey, that was... (laughs) Going back to when I was six and my mum had started riding and I was watching her and then I got the bug Mm -hmm. and then I started riding and then I was lucky enough to have my own ponies. And then it went from there. You know, okay, so regular listeners will know that I love the, the names of animals. I find them really fascinating. What were your ponies called, Jen? My first pony was called Choco, the chocolate soldier. My second pony was Polly. What was her show name? Midsummer Madness. Then I had Flash. That was a nightmare horse. <laughs> uh, and then I had Shaman, whose nickname was Ebenezer Good. Great, and great one. then that was it. I haven't owned another horse since being in the UAE. So what I'd love to know a little bit about your work as a coach, what, what's, what does that job entail exactly? So my job um, with my qualifications with the British Horse Society, it's welfare through education. It's very much teaching everybody how to do everything with the horses, from how to stroke the horse, how to feed the horse, how to groom the horse, tack it up, as well as the riding. The basics are so important. Tell us a little bit about your philosophies, really. So the philosophies are the three Ps, uh, preparation, um, Get you know doing all the basics, getting everything right, progression being all the hard work you put into it, the hours and hours of training, mm-hmm. the hours of reading and studying, and everything you put into it, and then the possibilities. Where can that take you? And I love to think about that relationship as well. I guess because it, you know I'm going to throw a th- 
fourth P in there. I guess that partnership that that evolves between there we go. There's the other P, the partnership. We're we're making it four now. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know a little bit about where you're seeing in terms of trends here in the UAE. You feel like there's a bit of an uptick of people, and I don't know if it's just people that I'm friends with or who I'm following on Instagram, but I'm seeing an awful lot of people going out for what looks like beautiful early morning rides through the desert. Certainly. Well, now the weather's starting to improve. It's still very, very hot, Um, but we can take advantage of sunrise riding, um, sunset riding, riding through the desert. We can go out for miles and miles and miles and miles without seeing a single soul, which is really good, Mm -hmm. which is really good. Um, Riding has got a lot more popular now, especially as Sheikh Mohammed and the Crown Prince. They do ride competitively internationally. They represent their country, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Her Highness Sheikha Latifa rode in the Olympics back in 2008. She was an individual show jumper. Next year in Paris, there's the Dubai show jumping team. The first time ever I got to Paris, wow. which is amazing. And I know some of them, so that's oh, even that's better. Really cool. That's very cool. And then also for the Asian Games that start next week, there is three or four riders there representing the UAE, which is brilliant. So real kind of trickle down from from the top yeah what yeah. about what about i don't know how to say this can you teach an old dog new tricks are you, are you ever too too old to think about getting on a horse absolutely not absolutely not as long as you find the right place you find the right type of coach you find the right horses and stuff i mean i wouldn't say you know somebody maybe in their later years would want to aspire to go to the olympics because that's just not going to happen but you can still enjoy being around animals Absolutely. and nature. So let's come back to that point then about finding the right trainer, finding the right location, even finding the right horse. How do we start to narrow down and the questions we should be asking about, about a facility, about a qualification? So if you were, first of all, looking to location, Dubai is so busy. We know what the traffic's like at the moment. Mm-hmm. After school, the rush hour, everything. So look for location. Look where you live and how far you're prepared to travel because you're actually realistically only going to be there an hour. So you don't want to travel an hour and a half to be there an hour to travel an hour and a half back. That's mm. just daft. Um, so location. So from there's plenty of really big centres, very close to popular areas of living. Then you want to look at reputation. Generally, the bigger centres have a better reputation. There are some fantastic small centres, don't get me wrong. Then you want to look at... Um, you know, how long the staff have been yeah. at the centre. Because if they have a, a very quick turnover of staff, it kind of says a lot. It can be for very good reason. can be for very good reason, exactly. And um, what about making sure, you know, things to observe about a horse is being well looked after? What are signs of a healthy horse, Jen? So if you're going into a yard and you're, you're you know, you just, best thing to always do a stable tour. If they're not prepared to give you a stable tour, don't go. Mm-hmm. It's that simple because they should be proud to show you off show off everything so signs of a good horse they will be bright and alert they will come and say hi they might not they'll have nice bright eyes a bit like a dog or a cat they'll have a nice shiny coat they should be well covered and that being you shouldn't see any ribs you shouldn't see hips you shouldn't see spine and they should generally look well mm-hmm. an unhealthy horse won't look very well it will look exhausted um, a message here saying how young can children start Good question. Very good question. Um, from my training, we would start them as young as four in proper official lessons. Mm-hmm. Younger than that, absolutely. But they're not going to have the attention span. You're just wasting your money. That's what I was going to say. Cause I kind of drew the parallel towards swimming lessons there. Yeah. Because my, my kids were really good swimmers, but they didn't listen. No, they won't so listen. So it was a case of, you know, they might have the physical ability to, you know, sit there and have that experience but there is often you know with the big animals there needs to be an awareness around safety and there following needs to instruction. be huge awareness about safety and younger than four they're not quite developed physically enough no. you can pop them on pony rides and they do 10 minutes and then some parents might get a bit oh you know i want them to do more and it's like come on be realistic mm-hmm. you do get those kids those extra special little superstars they're not yeah brilliant they can do it but not Younger than four, most places in the UAE won't take them till they're six. Okay, good to know. We've got uh, Jen joining us today. She is an international credit coach here in the UAE, a member of the British Horse Society. Um, are there other ways to be around horses? We were speaking on the show last week about healing through horses, you know, about, yeah. um, you know, almost like energy healing from, from being around these animals. Is that something that you've witnessed or experienced? I have. I was lucky enough um, a few years ago, we did yoga 
and we did sunrise yoga and then we did healing with the horses and it was the most incredible experience. I have never felt anything like it. Really? Why? What and it, it blew my mind. And I've been doing this a long time. And it blew my mind. And was this with people who perhaps weren't riders, or weren't necessarily around animals all the, the time? The people that were giving the course, nothing to do with horses. Wow. The so yoga what? instructor was so bend, it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> she was really cool, though. And then the, the healer was, it, she'd actually come over from Bahrain to do it with us. It was just amazing. What is it, do you think, then, about these creatures that we, you know, we have this affinity with or they have this ability to have this relationship? Well, they can understand us. And to some degree, we can understand them. They can feel our emotions. They can just ground you. And mm. calm you down. Mm. If there's nothing better than if you've had a bad day, go and sit on a horse on your own and just ignore the world. <laughs> and then you'll come back and the world will be right again. <laughs> um, what about working with horses? I'm sure as a six-year-old, that was always the dream for you. You know, I'm going to be a horse rider. When we think about, <laughs> you know, careers, and I'm getting away from the professional athletes now, there must be a huge you know, number of options there that we might not even be aware of. There's, there's many, many options. Um, I, as a six-year-old, always wanted to be a vet. Got a bit later on in school and realised I didn't want to stay in school that much longer. So then decided to... I made the decision to teach because then I could always have a career. Mm -hmm. I can always earn money no matter where I go in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of worked out. Not always right, but it's kind of worked out for us. Um, You could be... You could have a career as a groom. Not necessarily in the Middle East and in this region because we tend to have other guys that do it for us. But you have the international grooms that look after these amazing, beautiful horses that compete at the highest level. You know, you could become... I was working with a lady this morning who's the horse physio. Wow. So she heals the horses. I've had doctors on the show before and we've talked about stem cells and he's like, I'm doing a bit of stem cell therapy on on horses and camels internationally, which I'm like... I met a clone horse. (laughs) What? I've met a clone horse. And it blew my mind because I didn't know it was possible. (gasps) What a message here from Jennifer saying, Colorado girl here, is Western training available? Ooh, I don't know. Good. There is a good question. There is a young lady who I know who's done the FEI World Games... Um, and she does teach Western riding out here. There is, she's, but she's private at the moment. There is another lady in Sharjah who I know, um, Annie, who's very good Western riding. But Annie, I, that's like a real Annie, get your gun Western name. Yeah. That hasn't disappointed me at all. Jen. No. <laughs> and then, so she's in Sharjah, but she works with the riding school at Sharjah. But you could always drop her a line. I'm sure she'd help if she can. Tell you what, Jennifer, I will send you the details of these, uh, of these women so you can contact them separately. So lastly, any advice for anyone that's thought, oh, I've always wanted to, but I've always been a bit, scared and I've always felt like it's I, I guess for other people because I think that I think that's a bit of a, a misconception that you know if you were horsey as you when you were young that is something that other people do even if you've had this hankering do you feel like it is exclusive or do you feel like there's space for everybody there is a space for everybody absolutely everybody whether you want to work on the ground you want to go and volunteer at the EAPD which is the riding for the people with the determination whether you want to help with ride and rescue which is rehabilitating horses that have literally been dumped oh. Whether you want to, you know, learn to ride Western, just go to competition, see what gets you excited, see what you want to do and then go from there. And then you research, you find a place that can offer what you want. Generally, if you're looking for places, go to the bigger places first because they're established. Mm -hmm. They generally have qualified or experienced instructors they don't have to be qualified but they need to be experienced because it's your safety or your child's safety and that's paramount absolutely agree if anyone wants to find out more about you or indeed the british horse society is there a website or an email that we could give out to people we could share my contacts later but you can look on the british horse society website um everything's linked through there as well and one last question are there any women only stables good question for this part there are indeed um they do tend to be in the more local areas so kawanish arawaya there's a couple there's women and children places for sure okay it is it's all that you've just proved your point there it yep. is absolutely available. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jen. Really, really interesting to get an insight into this world. And if anyone wants um, Jen's details, you can just send me the word horse. You can send me the horse emoji if you want, and I will connect you. Jen Ford, a member of the British Horse Society and an international accredited professional coach here in the UAE. We're talking about welfare through education and, yeah, getting back on the horse after a long time or maybe for the first time. Thank you so much for your time. 
And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.